in modern images, the virtual reality, mixed reality, 360 video, 3D modeling, and related technologies are in the right place to people not believe in. So the format tonight is pretty much the same as usual. You normally start off with one or two speakers, and then we go to a networking break and demos. So we'll have demos along the back of the room, um, and there's more people coming along with stuff to show. So please take the time to talk to people that are showing stuff, uh, some interesting things along tonight, not least of which is the Microsoft HoloLens here, um, which there's probably going to be a stampede for at some stage. So when the lads get working, please form an orderly queue. I know everybody's going to want to speak because it really is a bad device. So, John Francis is ready to go. I'm good. Our, our first speaker tonight is John Francis. Um, just one moment. Oh yeah, before we go any further, I want to talk, I want to thank the lads of Workday and Paul Power over there, uh, once again, for making this really easy for us to organize because they do all the legwork in the background. And I know we all, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic space for these events, so thanks very much, Paul. And another note before I forget it. Um, Vanessa Lawrenson from Big O Media has done us the favor of organizing a bar for once because we never think of it ourselves. So uh, the Mission Bar down on Perky is key. And you can follow Vanessa afterwards if you know where that is. And she's going to buy everyone a drink as well. So thanks very much, Vanessa. <laughs> so first up tonight is John Francis Leader. Mixed reality therapy is what he's speaking about. John is a consulting psychologist and cognitive scientist with a background in filmmaking. Uh, he's a particular interest in themes of immersion, presence, engagement, and identification, which he conducts from the cognitive science program at University College Dublin. Uh, in the area of applied experiential learning, John Francis is the developer of a number of therapeutic approaches that emphasize embodied cognition, mixed reality experience, which focuses on harnessing varied uh, reality conditions for therapeutic gain. So please welcome John Francis. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. Uh, good evening, everyone. And um, happy Thanksgiving. Did, you, did anybody notice anything interesting? Um, we got Black Friday, but we didn't get Thanksgiving. Isn't that interesting, though? I mean, culturally. I think we know exactly the reason for it. But. So um, I want to start, if I can, uh, with uh, a little experiment. Uh, experiential is one of the words we used there a moment ago, so why not make it experiential? And. The question is, or the meditation or the reflection is this. If you focus on the words mixed reality or virtual reality, take your pick, mixed reality, virtual reality, what is the picture that comes to mind? What is it that is the first thing that comes to mind? What, what kind of strikes your imagination? So mixed reality, virtual reality. What comes to mind? Any, any suggestions? Not all at once. Hmm? Video games. Video games, OK, so that's one, yeah. Anything else? Any other picture strike you? Virtual reality, mixed reality. What else jumps? Floating glass. 
floating graphics. There you go. Anything else? Parallel universes. Parallel universes. Cool. Altered state. I like that one. Yes, the big headsets, exactly. And that is, um, that's a classic. There's one of those headsets. That's the, the one out at UCD. Thanks to the guys there for the great work they're doing in putting that together. This is uh, Keith Barry, actually, in the headset. We had him out there recently uh, to uh, try and explore where illusion meets the academia of, of mixed reality. It was interesting. I have a podcast, actually, we recorded it over next year. Check it out on the Twitter if you want. Give all my contact details, by the way, if you feel like uh, getting in touch. But yeah, this is what happens for right or, or for wrong. Um, these, uh, th th these headsets tend to be the very first thing that comes to mind when we think about virtual reality or mixed reality. That's not wrong. They're a very exciting modern extension of what virtual reality and mixed reality are all about. But really, the main point I want to make here this evening, and it's not really a new point, it's, it's more a mindfulness exercise, I think, this evening to, to just reflect on this, is that mixed reality and virtual reality are actually something implicit. They're, they're more an aspect of what it is to be human in the world rather than uh, some new technology. Now, where the technology comes in, is to enable us to certainly extend the, the mixed reality of nature in interesting ways, but also to be able to reflect on the ways in which reality is already mixed. Now, I'm going to break that down into a little bit more detail, but that's just to draw it out there. So, a little bit of uh, background I'm going to start with, if I can, on mixed reality and the background of those words and, and, and some of the, the, the kind of the genesis of it. But really what I want to focus on is what I'm particularly passionate about, which is the therapeutic uses and also educational uses of mixed reality, virtual reality. And uh, I think it's worth saying from the very beginning that when I use the word therapy, I'm not talking about you know, some Victorian notion of a, of a guy in a room with a beard and talking for an hour. I'm talking about experiences that are therapeutic. So that may be a classic therapy session where you're talking to your therapist for an hour, great. It may not be. It may be walking down the street, it may be seeing a, a beautiful experience of sunset and having some sort of, uh, of an effective experience. This is therapeutic, so I mean therapeutic in the broader sense is to include entertainment and education in all forms. And I think really my main aim from this evening is to, to I suppose, really encourage everybody and to really request everyone to take seriously something which I'm sure, to some degree or another, you've already reflected on, which is the, the opportunity or the capacity for the work that you do, whether it's technological or whether it's anything else, to be able to really impact people, but to do so in a very, very profound way. There's a huge amount of opportunity there. And I think it's a little bit depressing that some of the state of the art gets applied to, you know, at worst, just marketing, and at best, that's my Black Friday point, and at best, uh, entertainment. Entertainment is fabulous, and that should be included as part of the therapeutic game. But the point is that there's real room for, for individual developers, for creative people, to do the work of therapy, essentially. It's like the old politics is too important to be left to politicians point. Therapy is definitely too important to be left to therapists. It needs to be something of a, of a shared endeavor. So let me jump in, if I can, to a little bit of background in mixed reality, uh, bring in virtual reality, and then see how that takes us to therapy and uh, what that means in practice. 
So for those of you who've done any academic research in the area, this is just a classic go-to. Uh, Milgram and Cascino in 1994 um, used this uh, virtuality continuum to, to talk about the space between these two points on the spectrum. So we've got virtuality uh, on one end, and uh, we've got reality, essentially, on the other end. Uh, these points in the middle, we've got augmented reality here and augmented virtuality here. So we can think of augmented reality as being a little bit more putting, uh, putting the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the virtual over the real to some degree. And we're doing that already when we walk around with our smartphones, of course. We've, we've got these screens, and uh, sometimes they help us, sometimes they hinder us in our navigation. And then the other side of it, which is augmented virtuality, which is you're more in the virtual, but you're bringing the real in to some degree. We see this with headsets, when you maybe have a little monitor screen, you're in VR. But you've got uh, maybe a little bit of a window that's showing you a live feed uh, somewhere in the real world at the same time. So this is a good model. And one of the reasons why it's so good and why it's stood the test of time and been so helpful is because it, um, it is a continuum. And uh, I think that's really the point here. Uh, these aspects of virtuality that we look at tend not to exist in a very polarized way at any point. They tend to be flexible. They tend to be very variable. And sometimes even with a given technology, there are different ways of interacting with the different degrees of virtuality. So this model is very useful. But where it was really positioned, it was more of a technical paper. Uh, it's in the context of display technology. And in that sense, it makes complete sense. We're talking about real objects. We're talking about screens. That's what we're interested in. I'm a huge fan of um, some of the work of Christopher Stapleton and others over in Florida. Um, have done some, some great work to really take uh, the, the previous model that we just looked at, which is here up at the top. So there's the same model that we just saw here. And so they've got the physical as one anchor point. They've got the virtual as another anchor point. That's just what we looked at. But what they've added is something hugely important down here, which is imagination and creativity. And they're exploring then the space between these three points. And they're making the point that compelling mixed reality is some combination of these things. So whenever there's a human observer involved, there's going to be this aspect of the imagination brought in. We, we don't perceive uh, in, a, in, a, in a neutral way. In every given moment, we're, we're taking our previous experience and we're layering it on, augmenting, in a sense, uh, whatever is given in front of us in any given moment. And um, it's interesting, because even just you listening to me speak right now, I'm making sounds. That's all these are. If you don't speak English, this means absolutely nothing. And if you think about what your mind is doing at lightning speed, is it's referencing these sounds with every experience you've ever had in your life. It's aggregating some kind of sum total sense of what those sounds mean, what they point to and refer to. And in lightning speed, it's bringing up meaning for you. It is absolutely phenomenal. And the imagination is doing that constantly. So Christopher Stapleton, in one of his key papers, he references Ernest Hemingway in saying that the majority of the story exists beyond the page. And that's the point. And reading is another good example of that. If you're looking at black text on white paper. What is that? But of course, it can be this compelling experience. And I think there's a real lesson in, in there for us as developers, as creators, that um, it's not necessarily that less is more is the moral. I mean, sometimes, you know, having lots of cool stuff can be great. But let's not miss the point. With very, very little 
we can achieve an awful lot, a lot in terms of experience. And I think it is useful to remember that when we're developing, and uh, we can do ourselves favors, to be fair as well, in terms of the constraints that we're operating under. So some of the points here on this, if we take the physical and the virtual, that's what we looked at already. If we take the physical and the imaginary, we've got the, the, the space between these two points where we have uh, the example here given of a traditional theme park. So it's physical, but it's also imaginary. The mind, there's forced perspective going on. There's a narrative in the background. This is the story that's being brought in and augmented with uh, maybe a motion simulator or whatever other effects are set up. And of course, these play off each other beautifully. Because what the physical does is it, it, it scaffolds and it gives space for the imagination. If you have to sit in an empty room and use your imagination, or if you go to Disney World and it's atmospherically set up to evoke a certain idea. But the real art in doing this is to be able to do it, but not overdo it either. To be able to provoke the imagination and then give it space. Let it come in and let it fill those gaps as well. And the magic show then is another example of that where uh, a huge amount of it is expectation, and a skilled illusionist is playing on expectation constantly when they are when they're performing, and uh, you really can't have it without that expectation. Misdirection is impossible without that element of expectation being there to begin with. Uh, so the, the, the key reference here, one of my favorite academic references, is P.T. Barnum. So P.T. Barnum, the famous funfair proprietor, who. Um, was really an expert when it comes to mixed reality. If you think about what was going on there, what he was trying to achieve, uh, absolutely phenomenal. So then over on the other side of this model, we've got uh, Aristotle. So P.T. Barnum and Aristotle as two great references. And over here, film and novels uh, are given. So we can see why they're in the order they are, because the, the, the film is clearly a bit closer to the virtual. We can see the screen that's there, Milgram and Cuscino's model over here. With the novel, there's less virtuality going on. There's much more the imagination is having to do the work. The, the mind, the imagination is animating the content rather than it being given uh, the screen in front of us. And again, pros and cons to all of these different ways of doing things. So these types of models, I think, are very helpful. Because what they don't do is they don't legislate for here's the right way to work in this area. The more they point the way to a kind of a rough map of some of the territory that we're working in to begin with, which I just think is really, really useful. So that's a little bit of the background, which hopefully positions a little bit of what we're talking about when we talk about mixed reality and uh, virtual reality. So mixed reality, I think, as a, as a term is a useful term. Because what it allows us to appreciate is that the, the virtual exists as an aspect of mixed reality, but it's not the whole thing. There certainly is a sense in which we can physically look at a table there. There's also a sense in which I can put on a vibe, an Oculus Rift, a daydream, whatever, and have a representation of a table there. There's also a sense in which I can have no headset or table there, close my eyes, and have a very good sense of the table. So all of these are meaningful and they're all useful in their own way. So looking at it in terms of mixed reality is helpful. Now in practice, there's usually some degree of virtuality or augmentation going on really at all points. And 
this is, is the danger, I suppose, is that we think of virtual, rea virtual reality as just being the headset of the previous uh, slide, when in fact we're doing that all the time. We're making assumptions, we're listening to somebody speak, and we're pre-associating previous experience, we're projecting assumptions on things in any given moment. So I think when we start to appreciate that that's happening, that's really where the magic happens, and that's when we can really be quite playful and use the technologies then as a way of helping that. So, to bring it to the therapy then, therapy in and of itself is an interesting thing, and it's not really a thing. It's maybe a process, it's maybe an experience, it could be really any number of different things. Um, and extended therapy is maybe a useful way uh, of thinking about what is, I think, happening in, in the field of therapy. It's a little bit hard to quite have your finger on the pulse of it because it's a very diverse thing. It happens in many ways and in many, many places. But the old model of the notion of going to a room, talking to a person, and leaving the room, and that's therapy, I think has really been shaken, and, and so it should be. And psychological therapies more and more, I think, have looked to move beyond that. And it would not in any way be fair to say that uh, this is anything new. You know, arguably some of the oldest forms of therapy have embraced this. They might have quite labeled themselves as such. But again, like the thought experiment we did at the beginning, what comes to mind when you think of VR or MR? There's also a similar question, what comes to mind when you think of therapy? And there is a certain notion of that. And I'd like to think that certainly some of the problems we have in Ireland, and I think that they're universal to some extent around the world, come not just because of a lack of a personal willingness to face problems and engage in therapy, but more from having a notion of what therapy is, which isn't particularly interesting. It doesn't seem relevant, it doesn't seem exciting, or it doesn't seem to be uh, what, it should, what it should be. And um, sometimes that's right, sometimes that's wrong. But the point is I think we can really extend an awful lot further than that in thinking about therapy. So eclectic therapies tend to be the description of therapies that move beyond that. We've got dance therapy, we've got play therapy, we've got lots of different great approaches that have been around for quite some time and are doing very, very good work. Um, and an analogy I find really helpful here is if you think about the contrast between physiotherapy and psychotherapy. So if you went for an hour session of, uh, of uh, physiotherapy, and if you talked about anatomy for an hour, very well, very good conversation about anatomy, and then you left the physio session and you went home, you'd have the sense, wouldn't you, that something's missing, you know, that that wasn't the point of it in some way, even though we ticked a lot of boxes in terms of the topics of cover. So there's some sense in which we want to get up at a certain point in the session, move, stretch certain muscles, use them in one way or another. And we've learned from that, we get feedback from that. So this is the potential that I think is there in thinking about therapy moving forward, to think of it as a much more applied process. And it's not that we don't talk, of course we talk, we still do that. And there are times, by the way, where more applied therapy isn't going to be appropriate. Sometimes you just need to talk to somebody. That's all that's needed. But there are other times where Talking isn't what's needed, and it is more like physio that we want to actively put into practice. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, for developing this further. And the technology platforms that we now have access to and that are expanding even more are an extraordinarily exciting way of facilitating that. But we don't need them. 
We want them, but we don't need them. We can do good virtual reality therapy with no headset. We can do good mixed reality therapy with no augmented displays, headsets, captures, anything like that. These things are brilliant, brilliant extensions to, to what we're able to do, but we don't need to wait. And I'd argue that the less we wait, the better. The more we plow ahead trying to do what we want to do and let the technology catch up, the better. So action is the key point then in terms of, uh, of the therapeutic processes. Now there's challenges to this. Because when you use extended therapy, when you try to take the world and bring it into the therapy room, when somebody has social anxiety and when you want to not just talk about it, but you want to help them interact with people, when somebody has a phobia and you want to have that phobic object to some degree that they interact with, there's, there's a, a difficulty there because the amount of assets that are involved, resources that are involved becomes a little bit difficult. And you start to challenge what actually is the therapy. Is it just entertainment or what actually is it? So a helpful way of thinking about this, I think, is therapy as an intentional approach. And what I mean by that is, if you go into a museum, and I think we all know there are some fairly interesting museums in the question of what classes as art, and you see an object on a pedestal, it could be a fire extinguisher even on a pedestal, but there may also be a fire extinguisher over by the door as well. And you know, is one art, is the other not art? What, what, what's going on there? So we can see this kind of intentional framing of an object in some way that kind of gives us space. It's really useful to kind of look at it, to stand back and look at it and see it in a way we wouldn't normally see it. Because typically, we're so used to passing it by, we ignore it, we don't really appreciate it. And that's what I've been so, so happy to see. Um, in the development of virtual reality that so much empathy building has been focused on that I think everybody has instinctively got it from the very beginning. We haven't perfected it by any means, but we've gotten the potential of it to be able to create empathy in that way. So whether it's with people, whether it's with objects, there's huge potential there. So for seeing therapy as this intentional approach, this engagement with things, this empathy building, the, this practice of looking at the same thing from different perspectives, that's therapy at its very, very best. And that can be done quite broadly. It certainly doesn't need to be done in a room with one person. We can move well beyond that. So that's, in a sense, the background of extended therapy. So hopefully what we can do now is pull these two things together. The first we've talked about is mixed reality and virtual reality. And we've talked about the physical, the virtual, and the imaginary as essentially poles of human experience that are always to some degree in play. And we've talked about extended therapy. So extended therapy being that active approach that we're taking to the therapeutic process, more like physiotherapy in some ways, in that there's active engagement in having experience rather than just reflecting, which is valuable, but only part of what's available to us. So let me show you something which will bring us to the next point. Let's get back to the original Without much further ado, I give you the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good.
can we be expected to teach children to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building? Derek, it's just a I don't want to hear your excuses! The center has to be at least three times bigger than this. He's absolutely right. Thank you. I have a vision. And so do I. Let me show you mine. So, we don't always get it right when it comes to interpreting reality. And a mixed reality isn't just an interesting format to facilitate therapy. Using hollow lenses, using augmentation, using uh, various types of HMDs, VR, whatever it might be. It is that. But it's also actually something a little bit more implicit than that. Because in a sense, we're making a category error when we're using a VR headset. We're taking something as a virtual, we're, taking some, we're experiencing something virtual, and we're taking it as physical to some degree. And to the degree we do that, that's the degree to which we're doing uh, good VR. That's the degree to which it's designed well, it's pitched for the right person, it's set up in the right way. So we can use that. And by the way, we do that when we watch a film as well, isn't it? Because you go into a, a film theater, you're watching the film on the screen, you forget about reality, you forget about the people around you to some degree, you, you get immersed in this and you get caught up in it. And what's so interesting about this is on an emotional level, we're not really able to tell the difference. You watch a good horror film and you feel as if you're in the woods, your heart beats, your adrenal glands uh, are active, you get the fight or flight response, and uh, you know, if you're watching the film on TV, then the ad break arrives. There's an ad for yogurt or washing detergent. And it's a really interesting experience. It's like taking the headset off. So, okay, maybe there's something about screens that's special. Well, no, just pick up a book. It does the same thing, doesn't it? If you read a good book and it captures your imagination and it draws you in, well, the same sort of thing happens. Um, so this has always been possible, and of course words do it. If we think of an old Irish shanachie thousands of years ago, I don't know if there was any in this part of town thousands of years ago, I don't know what was here, forests, um, telling a story around the fire. Again, they're just using words. There's a kind of a hypnosis and immersion and absorption going on in that moment, a very, very powerful thing. That can be used very, very powerfully. It can be used for, for good or for bad, and it is a very, very powerful phenomenon. So that is one form of it, and there's great work going on there. Owen Harris is speaking today. He's a very good example with, uh, with his work. And uh, Mark Roddy as well, who regularly comes here with his mind, its work. Uh, the people at Science are another example. They're building virtual reality, um, particularly phobias, but other things as well, where they're having scenes where you can you know, bring somebody in and do desensitization work with an exposure therapy effectively. So these are really, really, really good uses of mixed reality and virtual reality. But, as we just saw in the clip before, without any equipment, we can recognize that people in a day-to-day -day sense are sometimes misinterpreting things. And before we feel too self-righteous in terms of Derek Zoolander, I think we've all, at one point or another, made that mistake, and uh, sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. So using mixed reality to assist in navigating mixed reality is something that we really want to do. Um, so I want to bring in a couple of key terms here, which are on this slide, but I'll show you the next table. Presentation and experience, identification and misidentification, 
representation and misrepresentation. And that's the boring bit, Don. We'll get into the fun bit now. Uh, by the way, this table that I'm just showing you now, there is, I couldn't get it to hang on the wall. I kept jumping off the wall with the blue tack. But over there on that black table, there is a graphic version of this with photos, which illustrates it much more nicely than this, but the photos don't fit on the slide. So do feel free to have a look at it over there. There's also a QR code on it. So if you scan it, you'll immediately get it all on your phone, all the photos and all the information. So do check that out. And if you're not bothered with QR codes or you don't feel like walking over there, just go to jfl.com forward slash MRT, mixed reality therapy, jfl.com forward slash MRT, and you'll be able to see a proper version of this with all the photos in front of you, which kind of brings it to life a little bit more. But what we're able to do uh, is we're able to take something that exists in one reality condition and we're able to experience it as if it was in another. So what this table here essentially does is it takes presentation here, which is essentially what we're giving a participant in an experience. Uh, it's a bit like the, the radio DJ choosing their playlist, putting it together, intending it for the audience, but then of course the audience on the other hand will be the ones experiencing this in some way. So we've got presentation on, uh, over here, and then over here we have experience, which is really what the participant is getting on the other end. And what's interesting is these two mightn't quite tally in the way we would expect them to. And um, it's fascinating because if you have an audience of people, inevitably no two perceptions are going to be exactly the same. Hopefully they're broadly in the same ballpark, but they can vary quite a bit. And of course the same words can trigger different personal experiences in different people. Hence on Christopher Stapleton et al's model, we have the imagination down the bottom and Ernest Hemingway's point about this story existing primarily beyond the page. So this is happening constantly. So it's, it's a very important design point, I think, as developers when we're thinking about the participant to really be aware of what we take this content as being maybe entirely different from another person, I mean entirely. As a quick side note, it's a nuisance from an interior decoration point of view being a therapist. Because if you're putting your waiting room together, you know, if you put a picture of a horse, you'll have somebody having a panic attack with a phobia of horses. If you have enough, if you work with thousands of people, enough people will pass through that somebody will have a problem with everything and will have some sort of an ab reaction to it. So generally, we're very bland and dreary. But what I'm working on at the moment, um, and I really appreciate feedback and advice on, is we're putting in screens and projectors and what we're going to do in advance is ask people a little bit in the intake questionnaire about their preferences so we can actually mood alter the room around colors, objects of interest, etc. So very simple, you know, we haven't even got as far as HMDs where we're doing that too, but just by even walking in, it seems warm, inviting, comfortable and there's some familiarity there. So this is the kind of issue that you know, I'm fortunate in that if I'm working with a person in real time, at least they can tell me, John, I don't like that. And then to some degree, you can fix it. But the problem is if you're designing something and you know, it's been packaged or it's been sent over the web and then you're not there with them, you don't necessarily know. So presentation and experience are these two points. So the presentation may be primarily physical, virtual, or imaginary. But the participant may experience it as being physical, virtual, or imaginary. I'll get to this in a moment. So a simple example of this is something that we all do occasionally is 
if we have a, a thought, but we take it as being physical, that's essentially what worrying is. If there's a problem or a difficulty or a concern that we have that uh, may never happen, but it's as if we're in a VR headset, this thing is playing repeatedly, and we're becoming present with it in the way we are when we put on a headset. We're becoming immersed in it to such an extent that emotionally uh, we're believing it to be the case. And the problem there is we're ignoring maybe the reality we're in and we're connecting instead with the idea that we're having. So the terminology I'm using here is equals. So this is technically I equals P misidentification. So the imagination can be taken as the physical in that moment. It's not the physical, it's the imagined. Now there's no problem with you know, building models, of course, but if, like Derek Zoolander, we take that model as, as being the real thing, we're gonna have problems. And this is something that we're just doing all the time. It's perfectly fine for an architect to have a model of something that they're developing and building. That's a good way of going about doing it. They know it's not the real thing. Uh, if you are an architect, you'll also augment to some degree. You'll go to the site, maybe the foundations are in, but the rest isn't. So you look at the real foundations and you'll use your imagination to augment the rest of it, complete it, and you'll see it, and you think, how does this look? And you can use that as a useful tool. But there's a difference in doing that and actually believing that it's there. And this is the danger of what we can fall into with thoughts. They can be very compelling. And remember, other people's thoughts can be very compelling too. And this is something that happens a lot, and I'm not going to get into too many uh, political details, but there is a strong argument to be made that you know, those who are effective in, in that sphere are those that are very capable of using their words to not just convey information, but to really create pictures, pictures that scare or pictures that inspire. It can work either way, and there's an awful lot to that. So that is mixed reality. It's being used in that way. And a little knowledge can make a massive difference because when we're a little bit reflective of where we are uh, in the framework, and we're, we're kind of conscious of what we're doing, it makes a massive difference. So I'm not going to go into every one of these uh, because there's quite a bit here, but do check out the sheet where the photos of each of these are. We have a fleshed out example of each one of these, which is much easier than me trying to describe it. And also on the website as well, uh, these are all fleshed out with some accompanying videos, etc. So take a bit of time maybe to reflect on that. And if you have any feedback as well, any suggestions or criticisms or ideas, please send me a message. You know, I really, really value uh, the opportunity to, to keep in touch and to potentially collaborate as well on this. So this first section here, from here to here, is presentation and experience in terms of a person taking one of these as the other. So this, this is where the green and the yellow and the red come in. This can be fine in, in some cases. Uh, but in other cases, it is a problem, like the example of taking the thought as actually being reality while worrying that we talked about before. If what we're doing is we're pointing to things, then it's not a problem. If I use a salt and pepper shaker as football positions in a game, and then I use them to describe, okay, this player comes in there and that one then defends in some way, that's totally non-problematic, because what I'm doing is I'm pointing to something with it. It's clearly understood by everybody that they are not the players. And if the salt spills and some salt comes out, nobody was injured. There's no extension of the analogy in that way. There's no problem. 
Um, but what misrepresentation is, is then when you slip into doing that, is when instead of pointing to something, it becomes the thing itself. So hence in the, in the Zoolander example, that's the thing that we want to guard against. So why this is interesting is because I know for me, when I, uh, when I tried, uh, it was the Oculus Rift, uh, what was it, a DK1 I suppose it was, uh, was my first proper experience of it and a number of years back. And what struck me most about putting on the headset was not just the experience of being in VR, but more, I'm sure, I'm sure you can relate to this, the experience of leaving VR and that transition between it. And then maybe remembering it afterwards and, and just reflecting on the difference between these uh, different realities. And again, that analogy struck me that this is an awful lot like watching a film in some ways, just more immersive. It's an awful lot like reading a book in some ways, just even more visual. I forget about the book, it's an awful lot like thinking in some way. So at all points, this combination of the, the physical and the virtual and the imaginary are coming together in some way, sometimes helpfully, sometimes unhelpfully. So I think a very useful way of thinking about mixed reality therapy and, and really what our goal is uh, in mixed reality therapy is to not just use all of this great technology, but just to be conscious of the fact that the physical, the virtual, and the imaginary are always interacting to one degree or another, and that we can use those uh, as ways to help people navigate reality well. A lot of work in mindfulness meditation, that's, that's the aim, you know, is essentially, you might not quite phrase it like that, but it's essentially to break down the perceptual errors that, that we make in mixed reality, to ground ourselves a little bit more in, in the moment that we're in. So on technological side point, um, here's a mixed reality tool that we use at the moment uh, in, in therapy sessions. It's a toy car, and uh, it's just an ordinary toy car. It's not special. It doesn't have any tags on it. It doesn't light up. It does nothing, absolutely nothing, other than be what it is. And if we take an example like driving anxiety, which is, by the way, a very common problem in Ireland. It's weird because it's talked about not so much compared to other phobias like flying, you hear about all the time. But driving anxiety is very, very common in our clinic. It's one of the, the main phobias that, that we work with. And um, you can do different things with that. You, you, can, you can get somebody in a car in real life and, and try and do some, some, um, some work on that to try and help them relax in that context. So that would be a, a physical example on, on the diagram. You could also uh, use a VR headset, of course, and there's, there's tools out there now for that at the moment where you can find yourself there in the driver's seat and uh, as, as um, mixed reality gets better, of course, you can bring in props and steering wheels and things like that too, so that's doable. Or you can get them to close their eyes and you can get them to, uh, to just imagine being there. And in a sense, that has to work when you think about it to some degree. Because if they're not able to imagine it, well then they're unlikely to have a problem to begin with. Because the problem essentially is happening because a person is, instead of just being there in that moment driving, they're superimposing danger, augmenting it essentially using their imagination in that moment. And the problem is the anxiety that they're feeling is completely reasonable if what they're imagining is the case. 
So there's nothing wrong with the anxiety. It's doing its job. It's an adrenal fight or flight response to, to help them in that moment. But the problem is, of course, there isn't any danger. And one of the worst things is, is having a sense of danger, but there being no danger. Because at least if there's real danger, you can deal with it. And if there isn't, you cannot. You're, you're kind of happy either way. So in this way, we can get stuck between reality conditions in that way, and it can pose problems. And it's weird, because we feel we can't afford to let the ideas go. We, we feel we need to, in the driving example, we can't afford to look at the road, because we need to think of the risks. It's this interesting hypnotic state, this presence, this immersion that we get drawn into. Now, driving is only one of many, many examples. It's, just about anything as an example of this. The principles tend to be the same. But it is a good example of that. So sometimes even just with the toy cars, they can be helpful to help kind of minimize the size of the problem, help the person relax and just look at it a little bit more clearly. The other thing we use the toy cars for is just drawing some parking spaces and help them get comfortable with the physics of parking, at what point to turn. So very, very simple, insultingly simple things. When somebody has a sophisticated phobia and you hand them a toy car, you know, what the hell is this? But it can be very, very useful. One other good example is uh, Google Street View. So you know, if they have a busy intersection, and performance anxiety is, it tends to be what comes in at a busy intersection, because they're worried about what the person behind them in the, the, the queue of traffic is thinking, and they're, they're kind of bewildered by all the options in front of them at the busy intersection. So something as simple as just having the screen, uh, putting up Google Street View, bringing them to their local intersection where they would typically have problems, and then just doing some progressive relaxation, just letting them physically relax and just mentally become a bit clearer, and just look, you know, rather than think, just look, just perceive. Very powerful. Because they're not only learning that local intersection, but what they're doing is something that's generalizable to all intersections. It's a bit like with the physiotherapy example we gave. When the physiotherapist has, you know, one of those very small flights of steps that leads nowhere. When you practice on that, that helps you on all steps. It's generalizable in that way, because the muscle tone that's being developed is useful in other places. So again, you can do this with social anxiety, communication, public speaking, that's as usual that we work with too. You know, there's an infinite number of them really, because phobias, you know, we, we, we find these interesting phobias like clowns or this or that or the other, but the point is fear can be attached to anything. It's an associated response, so just about anything can have it attached to it. The principles tend to be the same. So that's a simple example in, in terms of driving. What I want to see happen, I suppose, as much as is possible, is that I'm not the one doing all the work as a therapist, I suppose, to put it bluntly. Uh, not because I don't enjoy it, I love it, I really find it very, very interesting. But uh, I was talking to Brendan earlier, who's a, a fellow psychologist, and we think we both said the same thing, which is I'm sure you can all relate to too, which is that there is not enough time in the day. And that's really the problem. There's too much to be done. And the only way we're going to get there is if we, we spread the burden, so to speak. And what's very, very easy for one of us is next to impossible for the next person. <laughs> and that's kind of what human beings are like. So I think using a kind of a distributed way of thinking about this, uh, that we can uh, kind of make some magic happen, so to speak. And it's not that we have all the answers, we really don't at all. That's the point. 
that the point is is to really open it up and at very least when we're developing experiences in VR and MR, they can be what I call cognitively ergonomic. So they don't clash with people's perception and everything we know about it. Uh, and at best, we can actually have therapeutic games in what we're doing. And again, it doesn't need to be boring therapy. It, you know, this notion of here's an educational experience, you sit down and you learn to hell with that. It should be fun, playful, and interesting, but transformative. These things do not need to be in any way at odds. And if they are, we're doing it horribly wrong, and we need to show up and listen to our users, you know, the feedback that they're giving. They, they should be wanting it, they should be pulling it off the shelf, they should be downloading it, and if they're not, we need to listen to them a bit more. So, in terms of my work and what I'm doing, I'm um, out in UCD in the Cognitive Science Program. I'm working away on my research there. I've also got a training consultancy therapy practice uh, here in Abbey Street, um, uh, is in my main office where, where I work from. So, as I mentioned, we're looking at ways of doing this, expanding it. Kind of a prototype mixed reality therapy room is, is what we're developing at the moment. So I really appreciate feedback and collaboration on that. And the hope is to be able to have some good prototypes that then can be scaled out. Because for other busy therapists who aren't as masochistic as I am to go research and practice, to be able to try it and test it and then give it to them so they can just use it, I think is going to be a better thing than expecting everybody to research this separately and, and try and get it where it needs to be. What I'm also doing in my work is trying to develop, I think, what you could call um, almost a psychological SDK, in a sense, so that developers can have a great idea and not start um, by developing something and then thinking, okay, how does the psychology of this work? What does the research say? What do we know or not know about perception? But in a sense that there's some pre-made tools that are very user-friendly for developers, creative people of all sorts to be able to plug into to some degree and build on all the research and the good work that's already been done. So I think that's an important project. It's going to be a very big project ultimately. So again, this is where collaboration comes in hugely. But I think it's an important one. Because I know personally, if I, as a therapist, want to create a virtual reality experience, I don't want to open up Notepad and start trying to program Unity. And we don't want the reverse either. We, we, we want a sense in which we go, okay, we know this, this, and this about perception. Here's some simple models. Now let's build some experiences around this and do some good work with it. So that's something else that I'd like to see happen. So I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very, very much for, for, for your attention. And you have all my contact information up on the screen. So give me a shout. Keep in touch. It's a small world. So I'm sure there's going to be some great things happening over the next while. And uh, thank you for having me here. I think we've time for a few questions. Anybody? to some of these ideas is an important part of it, not just the tools themselves. 
I think you're absolutely right. My hope would be, though, that they're not two different things, that we can actually have the tools teach themselves. That's, that's you know, at least at the moment, how I would imagine it. Um, you know, computer games do this very well, isn't it? You know, when you start off and fall out as a, as a baby or whatever, and then you learn, you know, all your various skills and tools. So I think there's real good room for therapy to have that built into it. So that there's room for creativity, for exploring, and hugely important room for failure, isn't it? Because if you think about learning to walk, it's the slipping, it's the falling, it's the feedback that's all self-correcting at all points. So it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what it will look like but as much as possible in the work I'm doing at the moment, we try and make introducing these principles, and I appreciate I'm trying a lot at you in one session, but we try and take these principles and kind of encounter them, I suppose, in each session using experiential learning methods, which can be physical, virtual, or imaginary. Well, thank you so much. If you know where I am, if you have any feedback, come up and have a chat with me or keep in touch online. I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you.